So how do we do it? How do we keep our eyes open to blind spots? And you ever notice that successful people, accomplished people, and smart people often don't see it coming? What's the it? They don't see their pride getting a little too strong and causing a fall. They don't see it, temptation brewing at their door. They don't see it, a relationship starting to degrade. They don't see it coming. More than that, we don't see that we begin to define ourselves by our successes, by our job, by people's approval. And that sets us up for tells and weak spots. I don't know if you know much about UFC, but uh, a really significant fight happened between Ronda Rousey and Holly Holm. Now, Ronda, maybe you've seen her. She's been uh, acting in some movies. She also was a prize fighter, and she was undefeated. She was known only for success being undefeated, but she was also known for her Hollywood fame. And she went into this fight with Holly Holm feeling like she was going to crush her. She was highly favored. Because of that, she didn't see what was coming. She came to that first round and she got clocked so hard, she said that she never really got her bearings back. She couldn't see straight. And just a couple rounds in, she got knocked out. The undefeated Ronda Rousey got knocked out by a virtual unknown fighter named Holly Holm. Now, when Holly first started fighting, she was known as, or they wanted to call her the Hollywood Hottie. They wanted that to be her nickname. She refused that nickname and insisted they call her the preacher's daughter. Holly Holm, after this defeat of Ronda Rousey, is now known as the (laughs) baddest, best female boxer in history, or at least in the world today. She also says that her strength comes not from the outside, but from the inside. Her father was a pastor, and she learned how to find hope and overcome adversity because of an inner strength she gets from God. Ronda Rousey didn't see it coming. Amazingly, Ronda Rousey had an interview with Ellen just a week after that where she was incredibly honest. Not only did she not see it coming from Holly Holm, she didn't see how she had defined her whole identity by her record and by her being undefeated. Here's what she said to Ellen. Honestly, my thought when I was in the medical room and I was down in the corner, I was like, what am I anymore if I'm not this? I was literally sitting there and thinking about killing myself at that exact second. I'm like, I'm nothing. What do I do anymore? No one gives a blank about me without this success. She didn't realize that something good in her life, success, competition, she had begun to define her very life by. She didn't see it. Contrasted with Holly Holmes, Holly Holmes, which said that she's found her identity from a whole different place. She was asked where she finds her worth, her strength, where she finds the fortitude to compete. She said, well, I feel unfocused and detached if I don't go to church. I feel like I feel better about myself and life and my relationship with God if I go. I feel more connected. I try to go every Sunday morning, and if I can't, I get a little irritated with myself because I'm like, really, Holly? God sacrifices and has you in mind all day, every day. Now, you may or may not believe what Holly believes, but imagine the mindset of thinking Your creator thinks about you every single day 
and that becomes the source of your identity and power. How do we see it coming? How do we see the source of our own worth and anchor it into something eternal, not temporal? Today I want to look at how to see without looking. How to train my eyes to see the right things in the right way at the right time. To do that, I want to show you three reversals today. Jiu-jitsu reversals. My hope is by doing that, you will learn to see yourself, your own blind spots accurately, and you also begin to see danger when you are in danger, when you're headed toward danger, when the path you're on is dangerous by seeing the things that are in front of you, but right now, they're just outside of your view. They're in your peripheral view. If you don't know much about UFC and Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, it was begun by a family called the Gracies. The patriarch of the family was a customs officer in Brazil, and he helped so many people coming in from Japan enter into the country, working through the bureaucracy, that the Japanese prime minister was so grateful, he said to, uh, to the patriarch, he said, well, what can I do for you to say thank you for all the ways you've helped so many people? Well, this particular Japanese ambassador knew some people trained in the ancient arts of the samurai, which were going slightly out of vogue, and so he he said, I will train your boys in jiu-jitsu. And as very young lads, they began to learn jiu-jitsu. And they not only learned it, they began to perfect it, and they felt like they had created a brand new version of martial arts called Brazilian jiu-jitsu that they felt like might be superior. But who'd heard of the Gracies? They were a middle-class at best family in Brazil. How could they prove that their new way of thinking about fighting was superior? So they started an international competition called the UFC. At that first match, Royce, also it's written like Royce, but it's pronounced Hoyce um, Gracie. He actually came in, he's only 150 pounds at the time, this is him many years later, but 150 pounds at the time, going up against these monsters, black belts, six degree black belts in, in jiu-jitsu and karate and all the bit. And this guy walks out literally wearing a white samurai outfit and everyone's like, who in the world is this and who do they think they are? And by the end of that competition, Hoist Gracie dominated the competition with this new Brazilian jiu-jitsu. He conquered everyone and anyone of any size, forcing everyone in every martial arts to go back and rethink how they didn't see the weaknesses of their craft and wanted to know what it is they just saw happen with this new type of jiu-jitsu. It reversed everything. It turned everything around. I want to show you three reversals that can help us see the things that we currently don't see. The first one I want to call the targeting reversal. The targeting reversal is that there's the instinct in human beings to target the wrong things. In jiu-jitsu, your eyes are basically your targeting computer, targeting, assessing what, what's coming at you, what you need to pursue. But we need to target in reverse. So the instinct of us is always to focus on them, what they're doing wrong, what they're annoying us with, what, what their problem is, what their motivation is, how they're not parenting right. We're often targeted on them. But in jiu-jitsu, the way you lose a fight is you lose track of yourself, your mindset. Instead of being able to make rational decisions with the, the rational part of your brain, you kick into that fight-or-flight emotional part where your hippocampus kicks in, and now you don't see your tells coming. You're beginning to react emotionally because you were so focused on them, you couldn't keep your mindset on you. Now, Jesus, in a very famous teaching he gives called the Sermon on the Mount, talks about this reversal exactly that way. Here's how Jesus says it. He says, and do you look at the speck 
in your brother's eye? Look, look, you see what other people are doing wrong, but it's just a little speck. And you not consider the plank that's in your own eye? Hypocrite, if I first remove the plank from your eye, you got to first remove the plank from your eye to see clearly other people. You see, if you don't address your issue, it will distort your ability to see other people's issues. You say, I can't believe how gossipy that person is. I can't believe how gossipy they are. Then you find yourself gossiping about gossips. I'm really irritated by my, my son-in-law or my, or my dad or I'm really irritated by my boss. They're just so impatient. And you find yourself being impatient with the impatient. You find yourself hating the haters, being intolerant toward the intolerant, and you find yourself guilty of the very things you're judging. You don't see the plank in your own eye because you're targeting them, not you. You're annoyed by those who annoy you. You're impatient with those who are impatient to you. As I was talking with Marty, he said, you can tell the difference between people in jiu-jitsu who've learned the moves versus those who live the moves. In any martial arts, there's something called forms. And so when you're not competing in the ring, you're doing what are called forms. And that's what you're doing. It's basically an imaginary fight where you're working on an imaginary fight. And people go through the motions and memorize that as they move from belt to belt. However, he said, those who are just going through the motions and have learned it but don't live it, their targeting computer is off. They're just, they, don't, they just kind of go through the movements. Their eyes aren't looking as if it's a real fight. He can tell those who are advanced in technique because they target accurately. They look before they leap. They're assessing the whole situation, even in these forms, before they move in. They know how to target appropriately. In fact, when I met Marty, he told me he was a six-degree black belt in a word I could not pronounce. I still can't. Let me put it on the screen, and I'll, I'll, I'll try and sound it out. He is a six-degree martial art in Kajukenbo, which is a group of martial art people in Hawaii who took all the martial arts and tried to take the best of all of them. For example, you can see some of them embedded in the name. Karate, Jiu-Jitsu, Judo, and a bunch of other ones I don't remember. So he practiced in the fighting art of all the arts put together. Now, as he shared with us four weeks ago, he came from a very tough upbringing, physical, sexual, emotional abuse. And sparring became a way to deal with some of that anger. But he had no interest in God at all, let alone Jesus. But God began to drop the breadcrumbs into his life that he wanted to pursue him to bring healing into his life. Even when he got a six-degree black belt, this is the prayer that's prayed over you when you get your black belt. It's the only martial art that references Jesus specifically because the founders loved our country, loved Jesus, and loved martial arts. Here's how the prayer goes. Almighty and eternal God, protector of all who put their trust in thee, accept the humble homage of our faith and love in thee, the one true God. Bless our efforts to preserve the integrity of the United States of America, a nation founded on Christian principles. Give us perseverance in our actions so we may use this as a means to keep closer to you, the one true God, in the name of our beloved Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. And these little breadcrumbs dropped many, many years ago about Jesus and God culminated about five years ago when Marty discovered in a moment of desperation when he couldn't fight the way he used to fight and he couldn't sing the way he used to sing, he discovered that 
there was a God named Jesus who came to earth to forgive him, love him, but more importantly wanted to, to heal him from some of those abuses. If you saw the video in the opening week, if not, you can go back and watch it online. As he's sharing very courageously some very dark secrets he never shared publicly, I kind of reached out and I grabbed his hand almost in an arm wrestling motion. I said, man, I'm so proud of you. Thanks for sharing that. When I talked to him a week and a half ago, he said, Chad, that moment when you grabbed my hand was a profound new level of peace for me. I felt this impression from God as best I can articulate that God said to me in that moment, Yes, I allowed things, things to happen to you. But look at the things I allowed to happen to my son for you because you're that loved. He said that moment, that word created a peace that is just, I've been holding on to. It just hasn't gone away since we started filming this stuff two months ago. But it took him focusing on himself, his own tells, his own hurts, his own mindset, and beginning to see that for years God hadn't been a major part of his life. And as he looked back, he began to see all the ways the breadcrumbs had been dropped, even going back to his very martial art degree. How about you? Comes natural to target them. Can you do a reversal and start to think about you, your judgment, your self-righteousness, what you're bringing to the table, and how that might change the dynamics of the whole situation. Our second jiu-jitsu technique, I'm going to have to bring out Andrew for this one, is role reversal. Role reversal. And what do I mean by role reversal? Well, role reversal is you need to watch my fight tapes first. If you're going to go into battle, you need to know and watch the tapes of your, of your opponent. What are their tells? What are their weaknesses? But you also need to watch your own. When do I get tired? When do I begin to show that I'm tired? When do I show that my, my guard is not quite up? We need to role reversal self. Watch our fight tapes first. As I said before, I unknowingly distort their issues when I don't address my issues. A reversal in jiu-jitsu, if you haven't met Andrew yet, I introduced you to him two weeks ago because I asked Ryan if he wanted to be up here with me. He said no. And Drew didn't want to be up here with me. So Andrew is here instead of Drew or Ryan. So imagine that good old Andrew has got me pinned. So I'm down on the ground and Andrew's on top of me. So a reversal is when I'm in a position, I'm being held down, I'm being taken down, and I want to reverse the situation. So I'm going to move my arm to here. I'm going to grab somewhere around his, his uh, belt line. I'm going to move this hand right into his gut or his rib cage, and I'm going to move my hips so I can do this in one motion. Flip, boom, and I'm on top of him. Could even have my arm in a submission hold in one movement. So that's a reversal. You're reversing the situation. In the same way, often we're so judgmental of other people, but we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. We excuse our behaviors or our actions. By role reversing, we say, what might be going on that would cause that person to be so annoying or complaining or needy? Will we take a moment to see life from their perspective? And when we're pinned down by our own judgment, our own self-righteousness, our own sense that I know better than everybody about anything, do we know how to reverse to get out of that, that we're not pinned and choked off from the truth because we can't see the truth 
that we're being held down by our own judgment, that we know what's right all the time. Jesus asks the question profoundly. He says, how can you, how can you say to your brother, let me uh, remove the speck from your eye? When look, there's a plank in your own eye. How could you help someone? How are you qualified to judge someone else if you don't roll reverse and one, understand where they're coming from, but two, look at the plank. You're being choked off and pinned down by your own judgment. It's a good question. How can you do it? See, here's the truth, and, and you know this about yourself. I know this about me. When I think of other people's problems, other people's attitudes, other people's annoyances, I watch their fight film on like the biggest movie screen possible in my mind. It's like IMAX. Look at what my spouse did wrong. It's that big of a deal. It's that outrageous. It's that ridiculous. Oh, my sister-in-law, you gotta see how big her bad attitude is, right? We watch other people's fight film and make it really, really big. We blow it out of proportion. We, we magnify it to its maximum amount. They say, well, maybe you should work on not being so critical or maybe being a little bit more patient or why don't you watch your own fight film? Well, I'll watch my fight film. Let's see. And we look at this little bitty screen, maybe like the size of an iWatch, and like, yeah, I don't see I did anything wrong. I, I just think that everybody reacted poorly. I don't think I could have said this any better than I said it. We minimize what we do wrong while maximizing what other people do wrong. And then we do the opposite. We maximize what we do right and minimize what other people do right. And by doing so, we blind ourselves to be able to see what's right around us. Everyone else knows what we don't know because we're not seeing what's right in front of us. We're subject to what's called the Mandela effect. Now, if you never heard the Mandela effect, it was studied by a psychologist who was just shocked to discover that Nelson Mandela had embedded a memory in people, not personally he didn't, but he was an example of it, that never happened. Thousands of people, thousands of people reported having vivid and detailed memories of news reports covering South Africa's Nelson Mandela's dying in prison in 1980. I remember seeing the news, 1985, when Nelson Mandela died, and they would describe how they felt and where they were and what it was like and the discussions that happened. Not one person, not ten people, thousands of people remember seeing the news of Nelson Mandela's death in the 1980s. What's the problem? He didn't die till 2013. How could they remember seeing something that wasn't true? How could they remember experiencing something that wasn't true? I'll give you an example in your life, in mine. Think about all those years that you played Monopoly. Maybe it was when you were a kid, maybe it was with a neighbor, maybe it was when your kids made you play or grandkids. So I want you to pin, picture for a moment the Monopoly man in your head. All right, picture him. And if you don't remember it from recent, you remember like when McDonald's Monopoly came out. He was on the box, he was on TV commercials. I want you to remember what you saw. What type of eyewear does the Monopoly man have? 
Does he have no glasses? Does he wear a monocle? Does he wear regular glasses? Thick, hairy, carry glasses? Or does he always have binoculars? Now, you've seen him many, many times. You've heard of him many, many times. You've been around him. So with confidence, what do you know the Monopoly man has on his face? Anybody want to guess? A monocle. 80% or more of people are absolutely confident he wears a monocle. And you would be 100% wrong. He has never, ever, ever, ever had a monocle. You're confusing Monopoly Man with Mr. Peanut. Now, Mr. Peanut has a monocle. How can that be true? Because you're subject to the Mandela effect. You know you saw it, you've never seen it. You can Google it right now if you want. You will not find it. The Monopoly Man has never had a monocle. Huh. See, that's how easy it is to think and see and judge on things you think are true and facts you think you saw, but they're not true and you didn't see them. And that's what Jesus is getting at here. Part of this role reversal is seeing things from another perspective. Seeing it from their point of view. Getting out from being pinned down by my own, I know for sure how it should be done. I had several examples of this in the last month, maybe the last two months. There were two people that I had very much prejudged. One was annoying, just always so needy, always so just questions, the same question over and over again. Every time they would come to ask me a question, I'm like, oh, Jesus. Yeah, I put on my pastoral smile. Oh, yeah, I'd love to talk to you. Inside, I'm like, oh, geez, oh, my goodness. So I judge them as, as overly needy and not very wise. And another person I kind of judge as a partier, not really interested in spiritual things. And in both these cases, one a man, one a woman, I got to know them just a little bit deeper through an interaction and a, and a pastoral meeting with both. And I was shell-shocked to discover I just had not seen it from their perspective. The woman who I thought was overly needy, she was overly needy, but I began to hear her story of how much pain and difficulty she'd been in her life. The things she'd overcome, the things she'd endured, the things that created some of that insecurity. And I went from being annoyed by her, frustrated by her, to having compassion for her, and then having admiration for her for what she had accomplished in spite of her circumstances. And I began to look at myself and do the reversal and say, man, I was pinned down by judgment. I just thought I was smart. Another guy that I thought was just had no spiritual interest turned out to be a spiritual giant. It just was deeper and expressed differently than I would have expressed mine. And I went from being dismissive to admiring him. We're not really good at reversing. But when you learn how to do a reversal like that, you can move from annoyance and judgment to compassion and admiration. Or if nothing else, you can at least have compassion toward the circumstance the person's coming out of. But I said there were three jujitsu reversals. The third one I look at is the pride reversal. The pride reversal, one of the things that will take you down in the ring <laughs> is not thinking you can be taken down. 
I think what might have happened to Rhonda Rossi that day is that she thought this no-name Holly Holm, who's heard of her, is not going to take down the undefeated Rhonda Rossi. She said she, she was her third fight in nine months, something you don't typically do and something that's not advised, but oh, it'll be easy, I'm undefeated. She didn't see her tells. She didn't realize how tired she was. She didn't realize she wasn't at the peak of her, her, her game going in, and she didn't realize the opponent and the obstacle was as strong as it was. Pride reversal. You know, until you get taken down, you're either inexperienced or naive, or you're just acting. If you don't think you're gonna get punched in the face in life, if you don't think you're gonna get thrown around or have somebody throw you around when you play jiu-jitsu, then you're playing a part, but you're not really doing real jiu-jitsu. Until you get taken down, humbled, realize there's people better than you, smarter than you, and until you get taken down, you're either acting like you know what you're talking about or, or, or you're just inexperienced. One of the most famous Brazilian jiu-jitsu fighters is not Royce Gracie, but his brother, which is pronounced Royce Gracie, but... Um, Rickson Gracie, pronounced Hickson Gracie. Hickson Gracie is 450 wins to zero losses over his career. Hoist would say that his brother could destroy him, and yet he's an incredibly humble man. He's learned unbelievable breathing techniques that look almost alien in his ability to control his body, and he can suck in his, his stomach in such a way you can literally see the outline of his spinal cord. You don't know where his organs went. It's just amazing. He's teaching to black belts, a room full of black belts in karate and jiu-jitsu and, and boxing and everything, every other one. And he began to teach them techniques, and it's like stuff they had never heard before. And then after teaching for a half hour, he stood up black belt after black belt after black belt after black belt, black belt, and he, one at a time, fought them all. And in seconds, took him down, 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 took him down. They were shocked that Hicks and Gracie without even breaking a sweat, had such experience and such power and so mastered this craft that none of them stood a chance. One guy, a third-degree black belt, after having this experience, took his black belt and threw it in the trash and realized, I don't know anything about this sport. I got to relearn from the beginning. Are we willing to be humbled? Jesus continues his teaching this day and he says, guys, you're a hypocrite if you do this. You're a hypocrite. First, and look at the first-then relationship. It's not that you don't think other people are bad or you don't judge other things as wrong. Of course we judge things as wrong. But you first look at your own plank. Then you can see clearly to remove the speck. And the goal is to remove the speck, not point out the speck. But the word Jesus uses is hypocrite. And the word hypocrite in the ancient world that Jesus was speaking in means an actor. An actor, someone who pretends to be something that they're not. And pride is exactly that. You pretend you know more than you really know, pretend that you're smarter than you're really smart, pretending you're invincible. Life has a tendency to teach you things. You don't, you don't break the law of gravity, you discover the law of gravity. And the same thing, you can pretend, you can act like you don't gossip, you can act like you've got it all together, you can act like you don't have any secrets, you can act. But you'll be humbled. 
And in life, you have two choices. You can humble yourself or you can be humbled. Either way, you're going to end up humble. One's the easy way and one's the hard way. And Jesus, in using this word hypocrite, is basically saying, you've got to humble yourself and stop realizing you're acting like you wouldn't be capable of what they're capable of. You would never say what they have said. You've never done or thought what they have thought. You may have controlled your outer voice, but you've got some of the same things going on in your heart. How often are we acting like we're better than we really are? And then we judge people who aren't as good at acting. A buddy of mine, Jeff, uh, comes to our church. He has studied in jiu-jitsu for about six years, and he's really enjoying our series. And he said, Chad, I really would love to talk with you more about jiu-jitsu. I said, well, keep in mind, I know about jiu-jitsu, but I am an actor and a communicator who's only learned enough to make the analogy work. I am not a real aficionado of jiu-jitsu. When I was in high school, that's me on the left with the hair. That was during my rapper phase that I went through in high school. I went with a friend of mine in the top right corner, that's Tyler, who's about to break through the board. And we were in a uh, competition at Calvin College. We were going to perform in front of 3,000 students. And in that, I had devised this routine that involved a song that I was lip syncing to, uh, breaking down the walls. We are warriors are breaking down the walls. And during the chorus, I was, or during the verses, I was doing a juggling routine and a, and a magic routine while lip syncing the words. And during the chorus, Tyler up on the right, who was a brown belt in Taekwondo, was doing different board breaking demonstrations. So I learned how to hold the boards properly so he could smash through them. And then in the final culmination, I want to create a big ending for our performance in front of these 3,000 teenagers. We got three bricks stacked up and Tyler came down on these three bricks and wham, smashed through them all and the crowd erupted. And people would come up afterwards, wow, how long have you been practicing jiu-jitsu or taekwondo? And I could have said, well, let me tell you, we just broke through some boards, and let me tell you, okay. Here's what I learned how to do. Hold a board <laughs> with the proper amount of fingers for a speed break. I was just acting. And often we need to come down and realize we're just acting far too often. So my challenge for you today is are you willing to see without looking? See without looking at the defensiveness. Like, you ever ask yourself, why do you get so defensive when your spouse or coworker or friend brings up something? See without looking at, I, I don't need to be blind to that. I can address it. I can grow through that. See without looking at guilt and shame. A lot of us don't address real issues in our life that are obvious to everybody else because of guilt and shame. And this is where Jesus is so unique. Jesus comes and says that he died for all the things we've done wrong the deep secret things, the bad things, the terrible things. He knows all our secrets. And if anyone could gossip about you, it would be God. But he doesn't gossip about you. He points out to you what's going on, but he doesn't put shame or guilt on that. He says, hey, there's something we need to address. And by the way, I've already forgiven you for it if you accept the gift of forgiveness. And the message of Jesus is when you realize or when you believe or when it clicks to you that, hey, this is a pretty good thing, the benefits of this are incredible. I can be forgiven for past, present, and future. It doesn't become a recipe to do the wrong thing. It now means that when your spouse brings something up or your son brings something up or your parents bring something up, you don't have to be defensive for two reasons. Number one, whatever they bring up probably is one of those things Jesus died for on the cross. I'm open that what they're bringing up is probably something that Jesus died for. It just makes me more open-minded to see the things in my peripheral. 
Number two, whatever I discover about myself, it's not my identity. I'm not defined by how I act. I'm not defined by uh, my performance. I'm not defined by my reputation. And so if this thing you found out about me kind of goes against my image of myself, I'm not defined by that, so I can be a little less defensive and open to feedback there. That's what Jesus offers. Jesus came to earth, and he, he, he claims and says he's God, but he doesn't act superior to other people. He's humble. He doesn't gossip about you, though he knows all your secrets. And by doing so, he takes away guilt and shame. Would it be possible that admitting wrongdoing is more valuable than hiding it? I was at a Reds game recently with my son Quinn and my wife, and while we were there, this is Quinn, every picture he takes, he suddenly sees Superman. That's every picture. So we're sitting there, and in the middle of the game, somebody walks over and hands Quinn a ball and says, hey, would you like this? And he kind of, oh, so he, he grabbed the ball, he's kind of playing with it uh, a little bit. And as we're sitting there, my dad was actually behind us. He says, hey, I think that's Pete Rose in the front row. We look down, oh, I think, I think it's Pete Rose, famous Pete Rose. He says, why don't we go get his autograph? I'm like, no, let's not do that. We don't want to bother him. He's probably got, does that all the time. Let's let him enjoy the game. He's like, no, I really think we should. I said, all right, well, why don't you ask the attendant if it's appropriate? So my dad goes down and asks the attendant. He goes, yeah, actually, yeah, Pete, Pete signs, um, signs, but just between innings. So just wait between innings. So my dad went over there, and my dad handed him this ball and said, hey, would you be willing to sign the ball? I said, he says, I have a, a grandson who has autism, and, and, and he'd love you to sign the ball. Yeah, my, my son wanted the ball. Okay. <laughs> but anyway, um, and you know, he did. So he signed this ball, Pete Rose, hit King, 4-2-5-6. And he worked really hard for that number, worked really hard for that title. And for fun, I Googled it. How much is a ball signed by Pete Rose worth? It's like 50 bucks. You know what makes this thing three times more valuable? And they're out there when he writes, sorry, I bet on baseball. <laughs> when he actually admits what he did on the ball, it's worth three times more. You know, Pete Rose has done amazing things for baseball, and he's talked about his faith in Jesus um, over the years. But you know what struck me the most? Was that somebody of his stature was willing to sign a ball for, for an autistic, a child with autism, but when my dad asked if he was willing to sign the ball, he said this. He goes, yeah, I have, a son with, I have a grandson with autism. I know the challenges families face. I'd love to do that. I was struck by his humility, his service, as a reminder of me that we actually, when we admit what we've done wrong, <laughs> it's more valuable than when we hide it. I'll invite the band to come out. What I want for you, what I want for your marriage, what I want for my life is I want us to continue to see without looking. You can see what you're doing without being defensive, without having to be blind to it, without having to be blanketed with guilt and shame. That's what the grace and forgiveness of God is all about. To say to God, God, I got some areas that I need to change. Everybody's brought it up, but I haven't been willing to look at it. Will you help change me? Help make me the best version of me. Help me to see it from their perspective. Help me to be reversed in my pride and help me to target the right things by starting with me. As you listen to this next song, maybe you want to take it as a time of, of prayer. Just to kind of think about these words. Say, God, what are some areas you want to change me?